Revelation chapter 1, and I'll read for you again the verses that we've read for the past several weeks, verses 4 through 6. Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, and has made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the time that we've had already. We thank You for Your Word. Lord, I thank You for the, the unity that we see in the Scriptures as we can read of Your King in the Psalms, and now we can read of Your King in the end of the canon from beginning to end. We see Christ is King. And so I pray, Lord, that as we, as we give our attention to Your Word now, that it would be the appropriate attention of citizens to the Word of their King, that we would be encouraged as we see our King, and that we would be excited to continue looking, considering, and meditating upon our King. It's in His name, it's for His glory that we pray, that we worship, that we've gathered, and that we ask these things. In the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Well, as we've studied this greeting together, I know we've not gotten very far in the letter, but hopefully one thing is becoming increasingly clear, and this is sort of my goal in moving slowly into this book. One thing should be clear at this point is that the revelation was never meant to be a literary fog. A lot of people treat it that way. That there are some things in Scripture that are, that are as clear as a whistle, but the book of the Revelation is just not one of them, and, and that really nobody can, can figure it out. We've seen that it was a letter, it is a letter, written to real-life people in real churches, and was meant, upon its reception and upon its public reading, it was meant to be a means of grace to those people, not a means of confusion. I can't imagine that the churches, these churches in these seven cities, went home the, the day after they received this letter, and everybody went home scratching their heads, no more clear about their position in the world than when they had arrived. This was a means of grace. For some, it was a comforting and encouraging grace. And we'll see that, that all of the churches receive some comfort and some encouragement. Some churches receive almost all comfort and encouragement. For some of the other churches, it was rebuking and reproving grace. Grace nonetheless, but it, it wasn't quite as soft as it was. It came with a sharper edge. But one thing it was not meant to be was immediately useless. And as the, the reader in those churches would have concluded his reading of this epistle from John, he wouldn't have just closed it and said, well, folks, I, I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. 
what, what this all means. It, they understood what it meant. John writes to believers in seven cities as a representative sampling of all churches in all cities in all times, closing the canon of divine revelation with God's perspective on the world. And what could be a better ending than that? What could be a more suitable closing to the canon? You see, either we have a God who is always giving divine revelation every hour on the hour, trying to keep up with an ever-changing world, or He can conclude His canon with one final message to the last living apostle that would be a sufficient message to all churches in all ages until the return of Christ. The revelation is the latter. That's what it is. And so in this opening salutation, we've been meeting the God from whom this uh, apocalypse has been given, this, this triune God. And we've seen that He's this triune nature is not separated from any practical use, usefulness. Again, it wasn't that they, they heard about this God and they said, well, that's, that's great for the, the universities, whatever that might have looked like in the first century. It was God revealed as always in the exact character and nature that was the most beneficial to His people. There's nothing in the character of God that the people of God can't come to and, and derive blessing and personal spiritual benefit from beyond just mental education. And that's what this is. We've seen the Father described as Him who is and who was and who is to come. We've seen the Spirit described as the seven spirits who are before the throne of God. And now we finally come to the last person in this formula who is actually what we tend to refer to as the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we can skip the first point from last week. Remember the first point was, who is this? We don't have to go there because John names Him expressly, Jesus Christ. God the Son, incarnate to save by mediation as prophet, priest, and king. That's, that's Jesus Christ. That's a, a, a brief exposition of His name. So we can skip the question, who is this? And we can go straight to this description, which again is given specifically for the, strength, the strengthening of the churches. We don't have this description of Christ anywhere else. The fact that it's given here lets us know it was expressly used for their benefit. And the Lord Jesus, like the Father here, has given a threefold description. And just like with the Father and the Spirit, these titles are not accidental. John is not just grabbing things or using the lingo of his day. This threefold nomenclature is aimed especially at the heart of the saints. And that's what I want you to see. To understand that, we need to remember what we've seen so far about the job of the church. Remember, the church has a calling on the earth. The reason that we aren't converted and immediately sucked up into the sky is because we have a job. And that is to bear witness to the truth of God as it is in Christ. To hold up the light of the gospel. And as the church bears witness, the church should expect opposition. The world and the devil are not going to like the truth that we have to bring. I was having a conversation with a friend yesterday and he's, he's beginning to see how the truth will kind of whittle down numbers. And he made the comment about big churches and usually if everybody's flocking to a church, it's, there's probably some compromise happening. And I said, well, look at Christ. He began feeding 
the 5,000 men in addition to their families. And they were all there. And then he began to preach. And by the end, he had whittled it down to 12. And one of them was a devil. That's, that's what happens. When the truth is proclaimed as it is in Christ, there will be opposition. And as the church is opposed and as the church suffers and even as some are killed, we take heart knowing that that is actually the sign of our victory. That is a reminder to us that Christ has already conquered. And we are to be faithful unto death. Now in the, what we might call the right now execution of the work, so far we've seen that we ought to take comfort knowing that God the Father sovereignly rules over all of the affairs of history. Not only is He the one who is, but He is the one who was and who is to come. We've seen that God the Spirit has been given to fuel the church for this mission, this, this never-ceasing supply of spiritual power. So then the question could be asked, what more do we need? God rules over it all. God the Spirit fuels it all. What else, what else could we have? And it's a blessing to know that God doesn't simply give us only what we need. He actually goes beyond that to illustrate the answer to that question using a recycled illustration. If I'm going to dangle from a piece of paracord on the side of a cliff, words of reassurance are going to be a lot more comforting to me coming from somebody who's done it. So, uh, an experienced and credible source. And the only thing that I can think of that would be more comforting than knowing that they have done it is to actually watch them do it. Don't just tell me that it's going to hold me up. I want to see you dangle. Once I've seen you dangle, I might feel a little more comfortable about dangling. The point again is that the, the source of a word of comfort, the source of grace to you and peace, plays a large role in the comfort itself. And that is only amplified when those words of comfort come from someone that can accompany that word with action. They're not just saying it. They've done it. And that's what we have in this description of Christ. The church is to bear witness. Well, Jesus Christ is the, the faithful witness. The church is called to persevere unto death. Jesus Christ has already done it and defeated death. And as the church bears this witness in the world, we are very often at the mercy of earthly powers much stronger than us. And yet Christ rules over those powers. That's, that's what John's showing us here. That Christ has not called the church to any task where He has not already gone before her and over which He does not have complete control. So let's look at these three titles. First, the faithful witness. Here we see that Christ in His humiliation perfectly embodied and exemplified the role of the church as the faithful witness. The word for faithful means to hold fast, to, to, to maintain a steadfast allegiance or to endure an unwavering devotion to a cause, to something. The word witness is the word from which we get our term martyr. Now in this time, the term martyr wasn't an official term for those who were dying for the faith. It was actually uh, the term used for somebody who gave their testimony in court. This is someone who stands and asserts their position, the truth according to them, under solemn oath. So we see here that Jesus Christ is the unwavering, 
resolute defender, promoter, asserter of truth as he sees it. The text literally reads, Jesus Christ, the witness, the faithful one, or the faithful. Now remember that it's the job of the church to hold up the light, to hold fast through persecution, and to hold out until the very end. That's our job, to bear witness. But when we look at the language in the Revelation of bearing witness, we see a, a twofold picture. Here we see that Christ is the faithful witness. In chapter 2, we're going to see Antipas referred to by the Lord Jesus as my faithful witness. In chapter 3, verse 14, Christ is again called the faithful and true witness. And then once we get out of this, this first cycle, in chapter 11, verse 3, we have the two witnesses. And then in chapter 17, verse 6, we'll see that the prostitute, the whore of Babylon, is drunk with the blood of the witnesses for Jesus. Now what do these witnesses do throughout the revelation except bear testimony? A, a witness is one who gives testimony, testimony, just like in court. And that word testimony is a near parallel term in the original. And so we see in chapter 1 verses 2 and verse 9, John is bearing witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what a witness does. They give their testimony. But then throughout the Revelation, chapter 6 verse 9, chapter 12 verse 11, chapter 12 verse 17, chapter 19 verse 10, and chapter 20 verse 4, it is always the saints who are giving their testimony. They are bearing witness by giving testimony. And then in chapter 11, verse 7, it is also the two witnesses who are giving testimony. You see this, this twofold witness-bearing testimony giving. There's Christ, the faithful witness, and then everywhere else except for these strange two witnesses in chapter 11, which don't appear that strange once you see the theme. Everywhere else, it's always the saints of God, the church, who are bearing witness by giving testimony. The point is that as the church or the saints bear witness to the testimony of Jesus Christ, we are to always keep our eyes fixed on Christ Himself who is the witness, the testimony. We, we look at Him as the quintessential witness bearer, the faithful one. Now where does John get this terminology of the faithful witness? And it, as I was hearing the, the call to worship, a, a lot of times I'm not really quite sure which direction the, the men are going to take the Psalms, but it was, it was amazing to see the, the unity of the Scriptures here because John gets this language, I think, from Psalm 89. Ironically, a long psalm, we won't read the whole thing, but ironically, if you believe in irony, sovereign irony, a psalm in which the people of God are suffering under an unrighteous king. The enemies of the people of God are trampling on them because this king is unrighteous. And the psalmist is crying out, pleading to God, on the grounds of the covenant that he made with David. In other words, God, you have made a covenant with your servant. You've made a covenant that you would always establish a king on the throne of David. And it's kind of like, so, so here's our situation. So please continue to bring forth the promise that you've made. And in Psalm 89, 35, 
Speaking the words of God, we read, Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. And here you see the parallel with what we just read. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. You see, the point is, is the eternal throne, if you trace the language, his throne will be established like the moon, it shall be established forever. The throne promised by God would be the faithful witness. Just like the moon in the sky is a faithful to God's covenant with Noah, the throne, the establishment of the throne of David would be a witness to the people of God of the covenant of David. And of course we know that the Davidic covenant, like all of the covenants, find their fulfillment in Christ. Christ is the faithful witness because He is the heir to David's throne, the faithful witness to God's covenant, to God's promises. We could say that Christ is the faithful witness to all that God has ever said. Paul says that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. His existence, His incarnation, His life, His death, His resurrection, everything that He is, everything that He has done, it is all God's yes. I made promises, yes, it's all found in Him. All of it testifies to God's faithfulness, to God's promises. In John chapter 3 verse 32, speaking of the Christ, it says, He bears witness to what He has seen and heard, yet no one receives His testimony. Whoever receives His testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. That God is who He said He is, that He is doing what He said He would do, that He is fulfilling the promises He has made. That is Christ. He, in His person, is the witness, the testimony to the faithfulness of God. So what John's saying here, back in the Revelation, is that while the church continues to uphold the light of gospel witness, in the world we keep our eyes upon Christ, who is Himself the faithful Witness What Adam and Israel both failed to do, the second Adam and the true Israel perfectly embodies it. He's the substitute for the people of God. And so in His person He has satisfied or fulfilled what the people of God did not and cannot attain unto ourselves. And so as, as the church comes to bear witness, we come on the scene and we have this job to uphold the, the torch of truth. We don't do that as a means of earning our salvation. We do that looking back at the one who's already born the perfect witness in our place. And our bearing witness is pointing men to Him as the faithful witness. We don't bear witness and say, look at us, we're, we're the testimony. Now, now there is a sense in which people can see the work of God in the church... But that doesn't point to the church. That points to God's faithfulness. We point men to Him. We say, look at Christ. Look at God who is the faithful one. In Hebrews 1-2, we learn that God has spoken by His Son. Christ is the testimony of God. He's the bearing witness. God had to bear witness. He sent His Son. And we look at His Son and we see God's testimony. So Christ is the embodiment of this concept in His person, just His existence as the eternal Son incarnate in His 
existence. He is the witness to the faithfulness of God. But in addition to being the embodiment of faithful witness, we also know that in His earthly ministry, He actually, physically, was the preeminent witness bearer. He, he, he did it physically. He did throughout His life what we are supposed to do, and He did it unto death, as we are supposed to do. In John 18, 37, one of the final examinations of Christ, He's made it 33 years, He's down to the wire. It says that Pilate said to Him, So you are a king. It was a question. So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That's why He came. He was bearing witness. And Jesus Himself speaks to the very reality that His words and His deeds were all a witness bearing in John chapter 10. Verses 24 and 25, the Jews gathered around Him and said to Him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. He says, I told you, I bore witness with my mouth, you didn't believe, and I did some works, and that also bore witness, and you still don't believe. Jesus Christ is the embodiment and the exemplar, the, the perfect example of witness-bearing. Now, how does this help the church, whether it would be those seven churches in the first century or our church in the 21st century? How does it help us to know that Christ is the faithful witness? Well, we, re we are to remember that Jesus has set the pattern as, bearing, as a, a faithful witness. In other words, He showed us what it looks like. A lot of times we just need an example to look at. I think it was Jonathan Edwards, he said something to the effect of, this is how we learn, by, looking, by reading precept and by looking at examples. Christ is the example. What does it look like? We can read biographies of faithful men. We can read Fox's Book of Martyrs. But ultimately we can look back to Christ and say, there is the faithful witness. There's the one. That's what it looks like in his, not only in his, in the fact that he wouldn't back down, that, that's enduring, but the words that he said and the message that he upheld, that was his testimony. A testimony is useless if it's not to the truth. So we look at what he taught. We look at, we look at his, his gospel. We look at how he upheld that before men. And we also look at how he endured the opposition. All of it should, should captivate our gaze. What does it look like? Look at Christ. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and look at the physical life. Watch how He deals. That's what a faithful witness looks like. It's not just words. It's actions. It's all of His dealings. All of it is a faithful witness. He received opposition. And we should expect opposition. Now we can look at His example because His opposition was far worse than anything we'll ever endure. At least if someone came into this room, we, I, would, I would hope that there would be at maybe two of us who would stand up and say, I will not back down. Hopefully it would be more. But when Christ endured, they all left Him. He endured when He was the only one. So He received that opposition. We can watch how He endured it. We can pray, Lord Jesus, You, you, you withheld. You, you, you held up the testimony in the face of all of that opposition with no friends to back you up, 
When you could look and see the one final friend, he was over there denying that he even knew you. Give me some of that strength that held you firm and steadfast. So we look at him. In his word and his deed, he lived in all things as a testimony to God. He is in his being the word of God incarnate. He walked and preached the word of God with his physical mouth in his preaching and in his living, his doing and his dying, he fulfilled the word of God. He is the faithful witness. And so when it comes to we, the church, doing our duty, we look at him as the pattern. What does it look like? Look to Christ. Look at him. And Jesus Christ has also given us this command. He sets the pattern and then he gives us the command. We see in Luke 24, Jesus tells the disciples that the prophet said that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And notice what He says, You are witnesses of these things. Here's your job. You've seen it. Now go and bear that testimony. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses to the end of the earth. We obey Him. He sets the pattern. He gives the command. We obey Him. And notice in both of those texts, repentance and forgiveness of sins are preached in His name. We are to be His witnesses. He continues to be the source and subject of our witness bearing. In John 3.34, we see that Christ was given the Spirit without measure. Well, we have been given the Spirit. We saw that last week. We have that never-ending, ever-flowing supply of power from the Spirit of God. We saw that the Spirit that we have belongs to Christ. He has the seven spirits. They are His horns and His eyes. They are coming to us from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In other words, our power comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen, reigning Christ. That's the Spirit that indwells within us. The Spirit, in John 16, 4, we learn, glorifies Christ. Matthew 10, Jesus told His disciples, don't worry about what you're going to say because in that hour, the Spirit will give you the words. When you need to bear witness, when it comes time, you rest on the Spirit and He will bear that testimony in you and through you. And so in our witness bearing, we are utterly dependent upon the Spirit of Christ, the faithful witness. Now can we take any comfort from that, from leaning upon Him in that way? I think we can because He perfectly embodied and exemplified the task of faithful witness in the power of the same Holy Spirit. And so we're not sent out on an uncharted mission with no help. We simply continue to carry out the same work that Christ began in word and deed as did Christ by the power of the same Spirit as Christ did always having our eyes fixed upon Him. He's gone before us as the Good Shepherd. He doesn't drive us into the Great Commission. He leads us. He's always only a few steps ahead of us in the pathway if we would just keep our eyes fixed upon Him. We follow Him and we look to Him and we bear witness concerning Him, always pointing others to Him and gathering them in the pathway behind us as we follow Him. And in this way, Christ becomes all in all. In every bit of our mission, Christ is the faithful witness. Second thing we see here 
is that he is the firstborn of the dead. The firstborn of the dead. Jesus said in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So the world is going to hate the church just as it hated our Lord. And being a faithful witness may lead to a, a, a martyr's death, but we, as it did our Lord. Not that He was a martyr, but we may have to die for what, our, what we're bearing witness or for the gospel. Or it may just be bearing witness unto the very end through enduring and suffering. But just as it was with Christ, death is not defeat for us. We saw last week, death is, is the victory. Holding fast to the truth unto death is victory. Now here we have this title, the firstborn of the dead. Now notice the word firstborn is not two words. It doesn't say the firstborn. It's one word, the firstborn. A title belonging to the eldest son who would be the eventual master of the house. Even if you had a daughter first, she wasn't the firstborn. It would be the first son born who was given the title firstborn. It's a, it's a, a title of rank. Not chronology necessarily. And so we see here that Christ is the firstborn, the superior, the preeminent one of the dead. Or from the dead. The text reads, the firstborn, the dead. And we just sort of have to supply a preposition. I think from the dead is better because it implies what I believe is being taught here. That He has come from the state of death. The original source, again, I believe is Psalm 89, 27. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So notice as the author is describing those covenant promises that God made to David, and you can see there the relationship to the next title of Christ in Revelation 1, 5, the highest of the kings of the earth, John inserts from the dead, or, or the dead. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. John writes, the firstborn of the dead. In Colossians 1.5, we learn that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, which means He's the supreme ruler of all of the created order. It doesn't mean that He was the first thing created, but that He rules all creation. In Romans 8.29, it says... Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He, that is the Son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. That doesn't mean that He was born first. It means that He is the supreme ruler of all of the saints, of the entire church. And then here, in Colossians 1.18, which does read firstborn from the dead, ek from the dead, here there's no preposition, but... It, the implication is that He is the supreme ruler coming from the state of death. What's John trying to say? What does the, the resurrection of Christ have to do with His position as firstborn? We'll see more of this when we see this title expanded in chapter 3 verse 14. If you wanted to, to look ahead and begin to think about how this fits together. But what we can say at least here is that Jesus Christ, as the one and only one who has conquered death, He has been exalted to the position of power. He's the firstborn from the dead. We read in Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 20, that God raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, 
and above every name that is named, and not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet at the resurrection and the ascension. Philippians 2, a passage we should have memorized. Being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God hath highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He died, therefore He's been exalted. He's been, if we wanted to use a, a terminology that we are familiar with, He has been promoted, promoted to this position of special power and authority because of His death and resurrection. There's, as I've said before, a sort of another layer of His power and glory manifest when He conquers death. In the death and resurrection, Jesus defeated death. When He came out of the tomb, He came out of the tomb the victorious one, the ruler or the firstborn from the dead, the superior and preeminent one from the state of death. Hebrews 2.9 says that He's been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And Romans 1 tells us that He's declared to be the Son of God in power, dot, 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 by His resurrection from the dead. In other words, His resurrection was the declaration, and we might say the coronation of His throne. So again, think about how this would be of comfort to churches. Christ has given us the command to bear witness. And we look at Him. He's, he's born witness. But we know that as we bear witness, we are to be faithful unto death, whether that's in gray hair or whether that's early, we hold fast our testimony to the point of death and we can look at Him because He's been faithful unto death. Now, for us, martyrdom is usually just something we read about in books. we got Fox's Book of Martyrs. We read about martyrs. Perhaps we see the news of brothers and sisters around the world. But here in America... We've not watched brothers and sisters slaughtered before our very eyes. We've, we've never actually faced the threat of death for being a Christian witness. And I can imagine that when you're faced with that, it's a different story than reading foxes in your study. And as I said last week, there are, there are many of us, many professing Christians who might be bold in their claims as they talk about martyrdom, but they're already proving that they can't stand up in lesser situations. They can't endure lesser pressures. Just imagine what it would be like that if you don't recant, the guillotine is waiting. It's there. I can see it. I can see my family here, and I can see the guillotine there, and they're asking me, what's it going to be? The story changes at that point. That, that's a little different than, than our typical perspective on bearing witness and, or being a martyr. And we know Hebrews 2 tells us that, that death is sort of a lifelong slavery to men. Death is a product of the fall. And all men are created with this thing in us, this, this self-preservation gear where we don't want to die. We're not psychotic in that way, chasing after death. We want to preserve ourselves. We buckle our seatbelts. 
But Hebrews 2 also tells us that Jesus Christ died so that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, in His death and resurrection, He conquers death and delivers His people from that fear of death. Now that, that doesn't mean that we now love death and we're hungry for our own blood, but it means that we don't have to be afraid because our Lord has literally, physically displayed that death has been defeated. It, it is a defeated foe. And this is a reminder, as we talked about with the men yesterday, that a, a true belief in the resurrection of Jesus is more than just a fundamental to be checked off. Inerrancy of Scripture, check. Virgin birth, check. Deity of Christ, check. Physical resurrection, check. Bodily return, check. There, I'm a fundamentalist. It goes far beyond that when you realize that, that the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ is life and strength to me. I, it's not that I just want to believe that He came back from the dead. I need to believe that He came back from the dead because if He didn't come back from the dead, I've got no hope. And that's especially comforting to saints who are in that situation I described before where if they walk out of the building, there might be somebody waiting to take them to the guillotine. And so after being faithful unto death, again, whether that's old age or whether that is through martyrdom, we know, we believers can take comfort knowing that we enter immediately into the presence of our Lord, who is the firstborn of the dead. He has conquered death. Again, he's, he's walked this valley of death before us. And it's almost as if he walked through the valley of the shadow of death, went to the other side, flipped on the light switch, and then came back over to get us and said, now come on, it's a lot easier now, right? Now that we can see exactly where this goes. And so we have no fear, or we ought to have no fear, as long as we keep our eyes fixed on him. As we're bearing witness, even unto death, we're fixed upon Christ. Why? Because he's been there. And he defeated it. He's the firstborn from the dead. The third heading, the third title that he's given here is the ruler of kings on earth. Now knowing that Christ has gone before us in bearing witness and death and resurrection, that's comforting. But I can't help but imagine that throughout church history, like John the Baptist... This is not contrary to Christian faith that like John the Baptist, some of the saints are tempted from time to time to look at their circumstances, to look around at their prison walls and wonder, are you the Christ or should I look for another? Have I put my faith in something that maybe I ought to be looking somewhere else? And saints begin to grow weary of crying out, how long? Where is the Christ now? I'm suffering now. I mean, I'm glad He did that back then. And I'm glad that I kind of have a hope for the future. But right now, I need some comfort. Especially in those first century churches. We don't see it as much or, or feel it as much in our country. Even though it's probably still just as true. But especially in those first century churches... It is the kingdoms of the world that seem to have complete power over the saints. And so we see here that Christ has ascended to rule, even over those powers, because He is the ruler of kings on earth. Now this phrase, kings on earth, is 
used throughout the Revelation. Chapter 6, verse 15, it's the kings of the earth, amongst others who will hide themselves in caves and rocks, or among the rocks, and cry out that the rocks of the mountains would fall upon them. In chapter 16, verse 14, demonic spirit, spirits performing signs will go abroad to the kings of the whole world and assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Chapter 17, verse 2, 18, verses 3 and 9, the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with the great prostitute. And chapter 19, verse 19, John says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And there the dispensationalist is scratching his head saying, oh, I thought this already happened in chapter 16. Throughout the book of the Revelation, the kings of the earth are the lead antagonists against the kingdom of God. They are the lead enemies of the church. In the first century, it was embodied in Rome as a political empire and even a, um, a pseudo-religious empire. It was embodied in the Roman emperor and even lesser magistrates throughout the Roman empire. Those men who had the power and the authority to say, you, you're dead. Antipas, you're out. They had that authority. And so here we see that Christ presently is ruler of those kings. He is chief over them. He presides over them. Their authority is subservient to His authority. And that title and that concept, again, it finds its roots in Old Testament Christology. We've already seen Psalm 89, 27. I will make Him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Daniel 2.21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Psalm 2 and verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And then in verse 6, God says, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And in between there, you know that he laughs. He scoffs at their uprising. Again, think of the comfort that this gives to churches suffering under the, the, the domination of political powers and men with earthly authority. Because the church of Christ does not rule with military might or strength. We don't rule with high positions of power. We don't rule with clout in our society. And yes, there will always be men on the earth with temporal power to harm and afflict and kill the saints. And yes, as Paul said in his day, quoting the Old Testament before him, we will always be like sheep being led to the slaughter. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. And unless there's a time in history where that text doesn't matter anymore, there's always going to be a time in history where the saints have this pressure. Sometimes it's lighter than others and in various places of the world it's going to be worse than others. And yet our king rules over all of that. They have power only because he has allotted them power. Their power extends not one inch beyond the realm of the dominion that he has allotted to them. If he can tell the ocean to stop, he can tell kings, you can go this far and no more. There's a reason only Antipas was slain and not more or Stephen in Acts because Christ rules 
even these earthly powers. Not one drop of saint's blood will ever be spilled without the permission of Jesus Christ for His glory, for our good, and for the beautifying of His bride. Because He's the King, or the ruler of kings on earth. So John writes, knowing the dire situation of these churches, and he says, hold up the light, hold fast through the persecution, hold out unto death, and take heart, because Christ has not called you to any task where He has not already gone before you and over which He does not sovereignly rule. He bore witness, He died, He was raised, and now He's reigning. Now you go, bear witness, and die, and you will be raised. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now when we read first fruits, obviously we're thinking, well, if there's, if there's a, an early harvest, there will be a latter harvest. There will be more to come. That's us. He's the first fruits, and we will follow Him. Again, hopefully you see how immensely practical the fundamentals are of the faith are to the gospel and to Christian peace. The resurrection of Christ is not just a happy ending to a really dramatic story where we all just breathe a sigh of relief. That's, the death and resurrection is like the middle part, the climax of redemptive history from which the church goes out to do what Christ did, to bear witness, to be faithful unto death in hopes of the resurrection from the dead. And so we hold up, we hold fast, and we hold out. And we always look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him did the same thing. He endured the cross. What, what, what all does that entail? Well, He held up the truth. He held fast in persecution. He held out unto death. He endured the cross, despising the shame. And He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. So we just look to Him. We keep watching. We keep learning of Him. So let's pray that He would, by His Spirit, do this work in us and help us to, to keep our eyes fixed.